Hey, this is Pastor Spencer with Racine Bible Church. You're listening to a message from our sermon series in Isaiah. Let's pray. Lord God, we come back again and again to the cross. Lord, we gladly and willingly come back again and again and again and again to the cross. No hope without it. Without the cross, where would I be? Without the cross, where would we be? We have no righteousness of our own with which to appear before you. We have no hope of securing our future with our own hands. And yet the nail-pierced hands of our Savior, the willing obedience of the suffering servant, the Lamb of God, herein is all our hope. So now as we open your word, blessed Holy Spirit, show us the cross. Show us our sin in its worst colors that we may hate it even more. Show us the majesty and the mercy of the blood of Jesus Christ that we might love him even more. Help us to see Jesus extended on that cross, arms wide open, side pierced and split open so that we might know how much room there is in the heart of our Savior for us even now. Amen. Isaiah 53 deserves its sacred spot in the most revered and the most beloved chapters in all of Scripture. If we were to ask each other what Old Testament passage is referred to the most in the New Testament, you'd probably guess Genesis 1 and 2, the sanctity of marriage. When they asked Jesus what was the most important commandment, he quotes from Deuteronomy 6 that we should love God, and it always has charmed me that Jesus quoted from Leviticus as the second most important command, that we should love our neighbor as ourself. Psalm 110, prophesying the forever rule of Jesus Christ is quoted often in the New Testament. And then Isaiah 6 and Isaiah 53. Of the dozens, uh, D.A. Carson says it's probably at least 85 allusions or references to Isaiah in the New Testament. Isaiah 53 is so commonly referred to. Why is that? Well, it's because... The cross is the pivot point of everything. Isaiah is just one of all of the streams of divine revelation that is given to lead up to the cross. And all of the writings of the New Testament are the perfect, inerrant, sufficient, divine revelation flowing from the cross. But the cross isn't just the pivot point for all of the Old Testament and all of the New Testament and for church ministry today. The cross is the pivot point for all of future history when, uh, when time is no more and we're in eternity. What we will revolve around in eternity is this chant and this raucous saying, worthy is the lamb who was slain. Forever the cross will be the pivot point. And this text in Isaiah 53 is the doctrinal core of justification by faith 
of, of penal substitutionary atonement. It's the doctrinal core of what we believe. It's the beating heart of how we are saved. We can't overestimate its importance. And I want to look this morning at the end of Isaiah 52 and all of Isaiah 53 as the song of the suffering servant. And I want to be riveted right to this text. <clears throat> if I can control myself, I don't want to turn to any other text. Actually, Lord willing, maybe next week we'll treat this again because actually every, almost every single line that Isaiah writes, he's drawing from another part of the Old Testament. And almost every single line that Isaiah writes, the New Testament writers make joyous, fruitful living out of it. And so maybe next week we'll go backwards and see where Isaiah got this. And then we'll go forwards and see what the New Testament authors do with it. But this morning, I just want to look at the beauty of this poem. And I placed an outline, and I, I hate the word outline, in your bulletin because outline just sound, at least in this instance, I hate that word because outline sounds Western and logical. One, two, three, four, five. What I want you to see isn't so much a logical outline as the, I don't know how to, I don't know how to put it. The, the aesthetic swirl of the color palette that makes this text so heartbreakingly beautiful. It's such a carefully crafted poem. 15 verses, so five triads of three verses each. And the first three, which is the last three verses in 52, they, they set up this paradox or this riddle or this enigma. The person we're talking about all the kings in the world have to shut their mouths before him and he, will, and he will save the nations. And yet the person we're talking about is despised and rejected and ugly and disfigured and ashamed. How can this be referring to one and the same person? How can this be? That enigma or riddle or paradox in the first triad is resolved ultimately in the last one, the fifth point in your outline, the victory of his sufferings, the salvation of the world, where he sees his offspring. And he makes, and he makes uh, intercession for his family, his new offspring that, that his victory over the grave has created. And so with that first and that fifth, then we have the middle three. And 53, one through three is the, the fact of his suffering, how he has suffered. And that's mirrored by the fourth, which is the fact or the manner of his sufferings that he suffered willingly like a lamb. He didn't open his mouth, but he went forward into it with his face like flint. So one corresponds to five and two corresponds to four. That leaves three as the very center of the poem and the central, the central concept in the poem you see number three is the meaning of his suffering the meaning of his suffering is that when the innocent suffered the guilty could go free the meaning of his suffering is that we can be washed and changed and if we've got this understanding correct these five sets of, of three lines each then the middle line 
of three would be verse five, which would be the very middle with seven splintering out on each side of it. And so the very center of the center, the very heart of the heart is 53, five, but he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. That's the innermost meaning of the doctrine of justification by faith, penal substitutionary atonement. But that's also the innermost meaning of of why I'm alive today. And if you stripped everything away, houses, money, lands, kids, grandkids, you stripped everything else away, that would be the only thing that would sustain me now and forever. The doctrines taught in here are irreplaceably precious. And yet the way that they are taught is just heartbreakingly beautiful in the poem of the suffering servant. We begin in 52, 13 to 15. Behold, my servant shall act wisely. He shall be high and lifted up and shall be exalted. As many were astonished at you, his appearance was so marred beyond human semblance and his form beyond that of the children of mankind. So that so shall he sprinkle many nations. Kings shall shut their mouths because of him. For that which has not been told them, they see. And that which they have not heard, they understand. Here we have the first line says he acts wisely. And then the second says he will be high and lifted up. And the end of verse 13 says he will be exalted. So we have this enigma and this paradox that the the song begins with how exalted and beautiful and worthy he is. And yet all of the details of the song will be how disfigured and despised and rejected he is. Our Savior doesn't fit the traditional mold of a super action hero. Our God is not like the gods of the nations. Doesn't it seem when you look at the scripture carefully and lovingly and reverently that one of the greatest of the almighty powers of Jesus is his ability to return love for hatred. His willingness to bleed for the forgiveness of those who cut him open. Indeed, our hero, Jesus Christ, he suffers his way into glory. And this is the paradox. This is the riddle. How does he suffer his way into glory? This is how. This is how. By being pierced for our transgressions and crushed for our iniquities. Let me just point out one tiny thing with the word as and the word so in verses 14 and 15, and then we'll move to 53, one to three. If you look at verse 14, As many were astonished at you, his appearance was so marred beyond human semblance, 
and his form beyond that of the children of mankind. Verse 15, so shall he sprinkle many nations. I, I just want you to notice that word as and that word so, and that Isaiah in the, in the first lines of this poem is already beginning to draw a connection with his, with his words that you're meant to feel deeply in your heart. I, I, I can't come up with an illustration that isn't as trivial as waiting in line at Starbucks. So that's the illustration. We'll get back to this heartbreaking poem. The word as and so. We're in the drive-through line at Starbucks and we would say somebody does one of those things where they put down extra money and you know, pay for all the drinks behind me. As much money as that person puts down, so many people in the line behind him will get their drinks paid for. It's a small, trivial example. But I dare you to look at the word as and so and, and not have your eyes just shattered with tears. What he's saying is, as many as were astonished and mocked at his appearance being so marred, so marred. The connection is he was so marred, so marred beyond human semblance. He was so marred beyond human semblance. Verse 16, that's how many nations will be sprinkled clean by his sacrifice. Turkey, Turkey that we've been praying for. Cabernet Bacaria, Honduras, pause and just get back from. How many nations will be saved is indexed to how marred his visage was. We go on to the fact of his suffering in 53, one through three. And there's this continual oscillation between how great he is and how rejected he is. That's the paradox. He, he says that he's, he's gonna save many nations in verse 15 of 52, and then immediately he oscillates back to, but not even a single person's gonna believe it. Who has believed what he's heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of the dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised. We esteemed him not. No one believed him. He was utterly despised. How can both of these things be? Because he suffers his way to glory. Church, sometimes the church grows because new people come and they're baptized and people believe what we're preaching and the church grows numerically. Church, sometimes... The church grows by being rejected and despised and becoming smaller in the world's eyes. But church, whether we grow and God gives us favor with our neighborhood or whether we, so to speak, shrink and people in our neighborhood mock us because of what we believe, 
this has absolutely no variation or differentiation in the glory of the message and the truth of the message. One thing, church, I want you to always take away from Isaiah 53 verse one is just because nobody believes what you're saying doesn't mean what you're saying isn't true. And it does not detract anything from the beauty, the dignity, the authority, the veracity, the integrity of your message, no matter how many people mock you for staying true to that message. By God's goodness and grace, this low church, Racine Bible Church, for what, 1927, we, were, we, we became a ministry. My ministry here is a tiny little part of what, what has happened in this church. But by God's goodness and grace, I believe I can report with integrity, this church has never decided, oh, the world doesn't like what we're saying. We're gonna go ahead and change what we're saying to make the world happy. And by God's grace, we never will. It's God's truth. It's the suffering servant who suffered his way to glory for us and for our salvation. And in verse three, we have the title, the man of sorrows. We sang a hymn, man of sorrows. If verse three stood alone, which it doesn't, we'd be tempted to think, which it would be a mistake to think, that Jesus was sort of a depressive type, that he was morose and, and just sort of frowned at everything and was just sort of uh, sickly physically and spiritually and emotionally. But this is not talking about a, a personality type or a, or a human temperament here. When it says in verse three that he was a man in sorrows, it is filled in in verse four those were our griefs and our sorrows that he bore, not his own. He was a man of sorrows because he chose to take others' sorrows and make them his own. One, one, of, the, one of the irreducible qualities of the poem of the suffering servant is that the suffering didn't just happen to him. His suffering, he chose it, he wanted it, he walked into it, and he took it with his face like flint. He took those sorrows which were not his and he intentionally made them his. That's Jesus. That's what he does. That's how he loves us. And third, we move to verses four through six which tell us of the, the meaning of his suffering, that he suffered as our substitute. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. This poem is never abstract. This poem is never like removed and philosophical as if it was a debate about theology. This poem is in every line intensely personal, but the intensity of the personal nature of this song is at its 
peak in verses four through six. It's even more intensely purpose. It's, it's even more intensely personal because we're shown that the intensity of the sorrows and the griefs, they were ours. He was stricken, he was afflicted, but he was pierced for our transgressions and crushed for our iniquities. This is the center of the center of this poem. This is the heart of it all. That Jesus Christ was innocent and righteous. That we were guilty by nature that we inherited from Adam and Eve and by activity and attitude and the avarice that we ourselves chose every day. He was innocent, we were guilty, yet he suffered as a sinner in our place. Church, grab the word our in verse four, our griefs and our sorrows. Church, grab the word our in verse, four, verse five, our transgressions and our iniquities. Isaiah writes, not as if he's describing something that happened somewhere else a long time ago. Isaiah writes as if he is there at the cross, as if he is there in the crowd. Were you there when they crucified my Lord? The only answer to that question is yes. And I would have been yelling, crucify him. I'm not a big uh, painting or art guy. I'm more of a book guy. But one of the things that I do know about Rembrandt is that to me, one of his most beautiful paintings is his painting, The Raising of the Cross, where Jesus is kind of like a diagonal, just lifting him up. And if you look at that painting, there's a lot of people in it. There's one person almost in the background, but he's wearing like a, like a white turban as if he's supervising everything. And if you look at that person and you look at Rembrandt's self-portrait, that's the same person. This is, this is what Isaiah means for us with our griefs, our sorrows, our transgressions, our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. So I, I move out of this with peace. I walked into this with grief, sorrow, transgression, and iniquity. How could it be that I bring grief, sorrow, transgression, iniquity, and I leave with nothing but peace? The world doesn't work that way. Praise God that he operates by grace, not by merit. And I, I just, I can't get over the fact that this is so intense. In this most personal section of the poem, Rembrandt, we're painting our face there. It's, it's almost the most personal spot in all of Isaiah's prophecy, but watch this. It is the most God-centered and the least man-centered spot in all of Isaiah's prophecy because look what he says. Look what he says. Look at how theocentric this is in the way Isaiah puts it together. It's so penetrating to our human need, but look at the end of verse four. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten, by God. Look at the end of verse six. 
All of us, we've turned to our own way and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Pilate didn't do it. The Jews didn't do it. Herod didn't do it. You and I did This, this is not a scheme of people all about people. This is about the will of a sovereign, almighty God. Smitten by God. The cross is where the justice of God is on display. Whatever it says about us and our sin, it says more about God and his nature and his sovereign plan. This is the will of God. And all sin ultimately is committed against God. And it's the wrath of God that is satisfied. This is why the, 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 the most theologically proper answer to the question, from whom or from what did God save us? The answer has to be from God, from God. God saved us from God. Time doesn't permit us to do a word study on the, that word pierced and that word crushed. Suffice it to say that uh, I don't think there are stronger words in the Hebrew language, at least not in biblical Hebrew language, for the, for the excruciating nature of pain and, and suffering. The whips that he was scourged with, the, you know, the handle split out into what, seven or nine or even 12 whip tails, hard leather with hooks of bone in each of them. So the first few lashes opens the skin on the back. And then after the first few lashes with that epidermis removed, then, it, then the next few lashes get down to that subcutaneous tissue that protects the muscles and the organs. And then the next few lashes after that remove that tissue. You know, there's a prophecy, isn't there? Was it, is it in Psalm 22 that not, a, not one of his bones will be broken? That held true that not one of his bones was broken. But from his head to his feet, he was nothing but blood and exposed organs. Suffering for us and for our salvation. Why did he suffer in such a way? Verse six, because all we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. Can I just say it as far as the doctrine of sin? The way Isaiah, the way Isaiah lays this out is, is, is perfect. We all, each and every one. You see it? We all, each and every one. So common culpability, individual responsibility. You see it? Universal culpability. All of us together, it's universal. And yet there is a particularity. The guilt is yours. Your guilt is yours. My guilt is mine. He, he doesn't miss either one. 
So we say total depravity and we've inherited it from Adam and all of us are implicated. And the Bible says, yes, absolutely. And then as soon as we try to turn that into, well, there's just a herd mentality and that's just the way I was born and my parents were messed up and I'm just floating along and it's not really my fault. No, every single one of you chose to go your own way. It's bo they're both true. Over against any excuse, Isaiah says we're all and each and every one of us. And yet the end of verse six, the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Verses seven through nine, the fourth of the five triads or stanzas is uh, about how Jesus chose this suffering. He was oppressed Verse seven, and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment, he was taken away. And as for his generation who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people. And they made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death, although he had done no violence. And there was no deceit in his mouth. He opened not his mouth. Verses eight and nine say that he did no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. The sinlessness of Jesus extends to his actions. He did no violence and it even, in, it even extends to his speech and his intentions because not only did he do no violence, but there was no deceit in his mouth. Both his, his actions and his words and his intentions are ever without sin. He died in entire innocence. Only the spotless lamb of God could take away the sin of the world. And what the Hebrew text is getting at is not so much that, I mean, it says as a lamb, he was led to the slaughter. But what the Hebrew text is getting at is that he willingly submitted himself to the suffering. He chose it. He chose to walk in that way. Just like Isaiah said in Isaiah 42, he set his face like flint to go to Jerusalem to endure the suffering. The emphasis here in verses seven through nine is the clear-headed, self-restraining voluntariness of his suffering. In other words, the suffering of Jesus is not something that happened to him. Almost, almost every week, we have a new opportunity to pray and to weep with and to make a casserole for somebody in our church who's suffering. And almost, almost every instance of suffering that we weep with each other with and send the casserole brigade around with, almost every instance of suffering is just suffering that happened to them because that's the way life is east of Eden. Once, once in a blue moon, somebody willingly chooses to enter suffering so that someone else can benefit and be saved. This is Christ-like suffering. 
is a different category altogether. And we do comfort those who suffer. And we, we don't normally choose suffering. But Jesus did. He chose it as the Lamb of God. Then the fifth and final three-verse section is where the paradox or the riddle is resolved because we see it was God's will to crush him and we see the result of God's will is this victory. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. That suffering that he chose that caused him anguish, you see, it leads to soul satisfaction. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will divide him a portion with the many. He shall divide the spoil with the strong because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. It pleased God Almighty, the Father, to crush God the Son. Not pleasurable is an interesting word, not that it was pleasurable or enjoyable for God the Father to behold, but it pleased the Father in the sense that it satisfied his plan, his mercy, so that heaven's peace and perfect justice could kiss a guilty world in love. This is what pleased the Father. And then verses 10 and 11 get to the resurrection. His days are prolonged. His days are cut short, murdered at 32, 33. And yet his days are prolonged. We're getting to the resurrection. He's seeing the outcome of his work. He sees his offspring and he prolongs his days. I love that we're called his offspring, his new family. We're in a new family. We're in a forever family because we are his offspring. The authority that's given to him the satisfaction that's given to him. And doctrinally, the doctrine of justification by grace alone, through faith alone, by the sacrifice of Christ, this, our, our town in southeastern Wisconsin, like Roman Catholic churches, Lutheran churches, uh, Bible churches or Baptist churches, you know, kind of like ours, the doctrine of justification is, is if you want to talk doctrines, that's, that's, the, that's the definitive issue between those things when it comes to salvation. Book of Romans, book of Galatians, and the New Testament are written to define and defend the doctrine of justification. But I submit to you that Isaiah 53 verse 11 is about the most full statement of atonement theology and justification that you could pretty much ever need. Jesus is called the righteous one, my servant. That means that Jesus and Jesus alone is fully acceptable to God. All of the requirements of righteousness are fully met in Jesus Christ. And then it says that by, uh, by his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous. 
That's the very language of forensic justification that Paul makes so much of in Galatians and in Romans 4 and 5. That's what it's teaching. And he does that by bearing our iniquities, end of verse 11. He's so righteous that he is free from every trace or stain of sin. And he so bears our iniquities that we are counted righteous, even though we had no righteousness of our own, we are now clothed with an alien righteousness, a, a, a purchased not by us righteousness, the very righteousness of Jesus Christ. At the outset of the song, we had this word sprinkle in 52.15, he will sprinkle many nations. That's the, you know, the hyssop with the blood on it in Leviticus. They would sprinkle the guilt offering. So we have this hint of sprinkling a guilt offering. And then in the conclusion of the, in the conclusion of the poem, in 5310, Jesus is called the guilt offering. When his soul makes an offering for guilt. That's the Levitical language of the guilt offering. So Jesus is the priest who sprinkles the blood. Jesus is the lamb whose blood was shed. Jesus is, is everything. Jesus paid it all. All to him we owe. And then the song ends with this triumphant picture. The picture of verse 12 is the triumphant procession, you know, where someone has obtained a victory on the battlefield or in some conflict. And now there's a parade where the, where the victorious one is leading all that he's won so that everyone can divide the spoil and rejoice in the salvation that's been provided. And he loves us so much that he makes intercession for us. Not only does he save us, but then he prays and intercedes us every step of the way from here to glory. This is what the death of Christ has done for us. So church, when it says in verse 10, that he shall see his offspring. Who is that? That's you. And he sees that you're here right now, hearing this. And he even sees, even though it's not a visual thing, he sees what, what stirs in your spirit and your soul when you are brought afresh to his bleeding side to the wood on his back and you see what your savior has done. It says in verse 11, the many will be accounted righteous. Who's that? Well, that's you. Maybe, maybe you sinned in such a dirty way yesterday that you didn't even want to come to church today. I am telling you by the power of the Holy Spirit, when you walk in here, if Jesus is your savior, he sees you as utterly and totally and completely righteous. Righteous. This is what he has done for us and for our salvation. And you know, church, art, different people have different opinions, but this is why we don't have crucifixes all over the place with him still suffering on them because verse 12 tells us he is not suffering anymore. He is so done suffering. He's so done suffering and he's so on the other side of it that the only thing that he's doing now is interceding with joy for his children because he wants to bring them home. He's not bleeding to do that. He's just gladly rejoicing that that's what he's gonna do for the will of his father because of his love for us. 
He is enjoying the satisfaction, the sheer pleasure of bringing many ungodly people into heaven. And so the next time we talk about the vision of our church, the mission of our church is to make and train disciples who make and train disciples, this is what that means. That Jesus would have the prize for which he died. And now that he's risen the, and he's bringing them in, he's like, he's like I'm going I'm to fill my church with people who will bring other people to Jesus who will then be brought in that great triumphant procession back up to heaven where he receives the joy of his offspring. That's us. That's our mission. That's our identity. Can't we sum it up? Can't we sum it up this simply? If you would live right. The only way is by living at this death. If you would live right, the only way to live right is to live at and through and out of this death. Because then, out of the anguish of his soul in dying, he shall see your life and be satisfied. The only way I can live this life is to live it in view of this death. The death that Christ died in my place on the cross is the only way to live. I have no hope of hating my sin without seeing the cross of Christ. I have no hope of forgiving you when you sin against me without coming right back to the cross of Jesus Christ. But if I live at this death, if I live by this death, then I, then I repent of and confess my sin. I gladly and profligately just, just pour forgiveness and mercy and grace on you when you sin against me because Jesus paid it all. And he's my savior. Let us live by this death. Let's bow together for prayer. If you bow with me for prayer, I just give you a moment to, to pray. Contemplate Christ upon that cross and just tell him from your heart what, what it means to you. How thankful you are. Take his forgiveness. Maybe you need to just unclench your guilt and your shame. And you need to say, Jesus, I, I really believe that you paid it. For some of you, perhaps it's the way that somebody else sinned against you that has just become so dominant in your thinking. Just cry out to Jesus and say, Jesus, by your cross, 
Don't let somebody else's sin against me be the biggest thing in my life. Let your death for me be that. Let your life for me be that. in the life of your church. Amen. To find out more about our ministry, contact us at racinebible.org. Thank you for listening.